When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Build for Tomorrow, a podcast about the unexpected things that shape us and how we can shape the future. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, and in each episode, I take something that seems concerning or confusing today and figure out where it came from, what important things we're missing, and how to move forward. Do you like being bored? I mean, I can guess the answer. Your answer is no. Nobody likes being bored. So, okay, here is a more interesting question. How far would you go to avoid being bored? Would you say willingly hurt yourself simply because it is better than sitting alone with nothing else to do? This is what some researchers at the University of Virginia and Harvard University tested a few years ago. They rounded up a bunch of people and asked them to sit alone in a room for 6 to 15 minutes. To nobody's surprise, the people almost universally said that they did not enjoy this experience. And then... Plot twist. In some cases, study participants were put in a room and given a choice. They could either be alone with their thoughts or they could push a button that would give them an electric shock. And just so that these people knew what they were getting themselves into, they were all given an initial shock and it hurt. Most said that they would literally pay money to avoid being shocked again. But then they were put in that room with nothing else to do except sit and think or if they wanted, they could push the button and shock themselves. And wouldn't you know it, 67% of men pushed the button, and so did 25% of women. And so what can we learn from this? The study got a lot of media attention when it came out in 2014, and the response often sounded like this report from Discovery's D News. Hey guys, Tara here for D News, and it's become increasingly evident that we are society who hates being bored. A society that hates being bored. In other words, there is something specific about us right now in this moment that does not tolerate boredom. The implication is that boredom is something that we should be able to tolerate because other people tolerate it and the people before us tolerated it and we cannot. And why is that? Well, the answer would seem obvious, right? The most dangerous thing about carrying a cell phone everywhere is that you're never bored. Boredom, like pain, is a signal. That was a tweet from the computer programmer and essayist Paul Graham, which racked up more than 11,000 likes. And Paul is just one of a loud chorus of people today who talk about boredom this way as a natural state that we have lost touch with. It's almost like Adam and Eve eat the apple and get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and we picked up an iPhone and got kicked out of boredom. Here is the writer and philosopher Sam Harris on Joe Rogan. The smartphone has made it virtually impossible to be bored. Like I, boredom used to be a thing. Like you'd, yeah. you'd, you'd, you'd be sitting in the, the waiting room of a doctor, right? And they have crappy magazines and then you're just sitting there. And so if you, and if you didn't know how to meditate, you had to confront this sense of I'm bored. And here is Audie Cornish, co-host of NPR's All Things Considered. Here's a question for you. Do you have enough time to be bored anymore, as in mental downtime? 
Now, if you have a smartphone, you already know what I'm getting at. And here's a CBS This Morning discussion on cell phones. Is a smartphone the enemy of boredom? It really is. I totally understand why this idea is popular. I mean, it just feels true, doesn't it? Who among us has not tried escaping even the most fleeting moments of boredom? Who has not had to wait 30 seconds in front of a microwave, just 30 seconds, and pulled out their phone to check email because it's better than just standing there with nothing to do. That is me every day. But over the years, as I've watched people lionize boredom, I've become curious about whether this is really the right way to think about boredom. Because if these critics are correct, and boredom is something natural and good, then the desire to avoid boredom would be unnatural. And how is that possible? Humans are social and inventive. We build, we create, we keep busy. And sure, we all need mental breaks and moments of quiet, but did human beings ever really want to be bored? Before smartphones and the internet, did people just sit around contentedly being bored like a cow standing in a field? Did they enjoy boredom? Did they not try to avoid it? And you know who can begin to answer this question? It is... So what did I miss? You didn't miss anything, Thomas Jefferson. You are actually right on time for the first critical revelation in the opening section of this podcast episode. In 1787, American founding father Thomas Jefferson wrote a series of letters to his 11-year-old daughter, Martha, instructing her on how to avoid boredom. In one letter, he even wrote out a schedule for her to follow. From 8 to 10, practice music. From 10 to 1, dance one day and draw another. From one to two, draw on the day you dance and write a letter the next day. It went on like that. Every hour accounted for morning to night. And why would he do this? Because boredom, he wrote, is, quote, a canker of human happiness. He said that it creates, quote, a diseased body. He described it as, quote, the most dangerous poison of life. And he implored her, if at any moment, my dear, you catch yourself in idleness, start from it as you would from the precipice of a gulf. This was a common attitude in Thomas Jefferson's time, as well as for thousands and thousands of years before. People have long written down how much they despised boredom and struggled against it. Doctors even once warned about the dangers of boredom. Monks worried about the sins of boredom. And you want to know what the ancient Greeks thought about boredom? Some people called it the noontime demon. That is Susan Matt, a historian of emotions who you'll be hearing a lot more from soon, because as it turns out, we know a lot about how humans throughout history responded to boredom. And the answer is fascinating and a lot more complicated than you would expect. Anxiety over boredom, even in the last 200 years, has also been a part of anxiety about class and shifting economics and a very evolving understanding of medicine. So when you hear someone like Paul Graham say that boredom, like pain, is a signal, you can follow it up by saying, yes, it is a signal that you should do some more research, man, because boredom is not a parable about big, bad cell phones stealing our minds away from us. It is a story about centuries of humanity struggling with exactly what it means to be human. So... Should we escape boredom? Should we embrace boredom? Should we feel guilty and ashamed every time we use our phones? On this episode of Build for Tomorrow, we're going to answer that question by looking at boredom in the least boring way possible. It is a trip through history and science looking at where our struggle with boredom came from and what, if anything, boredom is really good for. All coming up after the break. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Keeping up with the news can be a pain. The good stuff is behind paywalls and the free stuff is often clickbait. So imagine an app where you can get unlocked access to the reliable news sites. An app that filters out garbage but still shows you multiple perspectives, where positive stories are highlighted so you don't become despondent, and where journalists dig through the news from around the world to find stories you wouldn't normally see. That's what an innovative Australian app called Inkle has built. That is I-N-K-L. Inkle.com has signed partnerships with 100-plus news sources like The Economist, The Atlantic, and Bloomberg and created a unique system combining journalists and algorithms to create a best-of-the-news feed. The service unlocks more than $12,000 of premium news for 100 bucks a year. If you go now to Inkle.com slash tomorrow, they'll give you an additional 25% off. So, you can get a whole year's worth of headache-free news for just 75 bucks. Again, that is Inkle, I-N-K-L dot com slash tomorrow. All right, we are back and things are about to get boring in the best possible way. To start, let me properly introduce you to two people you'll be hearing a lot from. First, there is the woman you heard from a moment ago. I'm Susan Matt. I'm a professor of history at Weber State University, and I focus on the history of the emotions. And next, there is Luke. I'm Luke Fernandez, and I'm an assistant professor at Weber State University in the School of Computing. Susan and Luke are the married co-authors of a brilliant book that I just love called Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid. It is a history of all those emotions and more, and the vast majority of this episode will be drawn from their research. And also, side note before we begin, as this episode goes on, you are going to hear like a full range of noises in the background of their audio. That is because Susan, Luke, and I all happened to be in Colorado when I asked to interview them, so we decided to meet up and do it in person, which you'd think would make for a better interview, but instead, a cascading combination of dogs and children and airplanes and a freaking hailstorm made it perhaps the noisiest interview I have ever done. But hey, at least it wasn't boring. So okay, here's the first thing that you need to know about boredom. The concept as we know it today, and even the word boredom itself, is relatively new, but the seeds of it were planted in ancient Greece. So the ancient Greeks had a word, asedia, which meant kind of listlessness. And early Christians applied it to monks who went out into the desert, lived alone, and got struck with kind of a melancholy that made them falter in their devotion to God. This, historians believe, is one of the earliest known expressions of the concept of boredom. And right out of the gate, things are complicated. Because think of it, these monks have gone out into the desert specifically to focus on God and nothing else. And now they are bored? You shouldn't be bored doing something that important. It became a sign of your lack of devotion to God and to your monastic vows. Boredom, like pain, is a signal. And this is how boredom becomes a sin. 
By the 12th century, the concept of Asadia shifted a little. It was still associated with religion, but no longer just applied to monks. Now, the average person could suffer from it as well if they weren't super into doing their prayers. Then, around the same time, the French developed a similar word, ennui, which was not specific to religion. It just meant a kind of draining listlessness. And by the 18th century, ennui was adopted into the English language and made its way over to America. This means that the Americans in the 1700s and much of the 1800s did not actually use the word boredom, which hadn't been created yet. So when I quoted Thomas Jefferson a few moments ago, his letters actually spoke of ennui. Ennui is the canker of human happiness. You can also find a fear of ennui in the letters of Thomas Jefferson's political opponent, John Adams. In 1801, after he lost his re-election bid for president against Jefferson, Adams wrote about how bored or ennui-ish he was now going to be. Ennui, when it rains on a man in large drops, is worse than one of our northeast storms. But the labors of agriculture and amusement of letters will shelter me. Men like these had reason to worry. Doctors of the day were constantly warning about how ennui could destroy your mind. It could lead to drunkenness or drunkenness could cause it, depending who you consulted. It could lead to masturbation or perhaps <laughs> masturbation could cause it. And so there's this whole kind of litany of Victorian sins that are, are linked to idleness and, and ennui. And so that comes up in a lot of asylum reports and newspaper reports and the like. Or even uh, allegedly suicide, right? There's a, a journal article about a, an aristocrat in Monte Carlo who kills himself in, in, at a dinner party, claiming that he's just too bored to go on with his life. And hey, have you noticed a pattern here? Who have we heard about suffering from ennui? Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, this aristocrat in Monte Carlo, that is not a coincidence. Just like Asadia in early Christianity was thought to only afflict monks, ennui in early America was thought to only afflict the wealthy. The working people, it was believed, had plenty to keep them busy, so ennui was what people felt when they had too much leisure and not enough to do. It was a very real boredom, but also a kind of guilt or shame for all their excess time, which made ennui a complex experience. And I would hazard to say that this carries on today, even though we don't use the word. I mean, who do you see obsessing and self-flagellating over how they spend their downtime today? It is the class that has the time to worry about how they spend their time. Boredom, like pain, is a signal. <sighs> and that signal becomes clearer and clearer. It is a slightly privileged position to be able to celebrate spending time off the grid and celebrate boredom. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves because the people of the 1800s were about to reckon with this too. I mean, the laboring class had to feel bored, right? They may not have used the word ennui, but they were often working in the fields for hours and hours doing monotonous tasks that could not have possibly engaged their minds. So what were they saying about that experience? The answer is interesting and complicated. First of all, the laboring class told a story of itself in which it was proud to never suffer from ennui. This piece from the Palatka News and Advertiser captures it well. It explores whether money and possessions can truly make someone happy. These things never bring happiness. Never, never, never. They bring, on the contrary, sadness, weariness, and ennui. Oh, is there anything on earth as awful as ennui? It bites into the very soul and saps life of all that is worthwhile. 
What did the laboring class say about their work instead? They used words like dull or wearisome. Susan and Luke found tons of letters and diaries written by farmers and workers in the 1800s who describe in a matter-of-fact way what sounds like a very boring life. A settler in Kansas named James R. Stewart, for example, wrote in 1855 that in the entire month of June, he, quote, saw no unusual sights, heard no unusual sounds, did no unusual feats, end quote. And I got the sense that by reading through these, they would have really liked more excitement in their lives. But they did have something that helped them carry on. And that is, they were the beneficiaries of the Protestant Reformation from centuries before, which associated work with virtue. When you're out there on your farm or on your homestead and trying to plow the land or harvest a crop, there's a lot of tedium and monotony involved in that activity. But you don't attach much import to that because you see so much virtue in the actual work you're doing. And so people from the middle classes or the yeoman farmers, the people out in the homesteads, yeah, they, they felt tedium, they felt monotony, but they didn't worry about it the way upper classes did. But still, how did they cope with the monotony? They basically resigned themselves to it. They read, they daydreamed, they built air castles. That was a common phrase they used, building air castles. The settler in Kansas once wrote in his diary that the day's big activity was walking over to someone's house, finding that nobody was home, and then walking back. Some people did romanticize this. There was a pamphlet in 1890 that sold well called Blessed Be Drudgery. But most people seemed not to think of it as good or bad. They just considered dullness to be part of life. And then everything changed because of this. When industrialization increased in America in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it changed the way people thought about work. Beforehand, many Americans worked for themselves. That was what was going on in that example Luke gave from a moment ago, you know, the yeoman farmer doing monotonous work but feeling the virtues of labor. Now, more people were working for others, doing a single task in a factory over and over. And they found very little virtue in that. There are lots of histories on the evolution of work which show that the intrinsic satisfaction you can take from work goes down when you become part of an assembly line and you're not producing a whole product. And these new workers had a relatively new word to apply to these new jobs. It was, finally, the word we now know and use the word boring. The word actually was developed in the background over a few hundred years. In the 18th century, the word bore described a very dull person. And then in the mid-19th century, that evolved into the word boredom, which was a state of mind. And this became a useful word because, of course, the word ennui was still associated with the wealthy. But anyone, no matter their job or status, could be And maybe that's why it catches on in a way that ennui never does in America. But of course, as we know, people do not want to be bored. And while they were once willing to tolerate the feeling of absolute dullness, they now are working in factories and the feeling became intolerable. I mean, when Henry Ford wanted to add 100 men to his factory, he had to hire 963 of them because the vast majority would leave. So now employers had a problem. They needed people to do these new jobs, but these new jobs were too boring. 
So what's the fix? The industrial psychologist Elton Mayo looked into this question in the 1920s and came up with an answer. Here is what he said in a radio broadcast called What Do Workers Want? If our work has become in some degree routine or even monotonous, we are compelled to develop as a balance the practical and social aspect of things. The home and garden, the children, participation in neighborhood activities all take on added importance. When work sucks, then your off-the-clock time must compensate for it. Very quickly, the entertainment industry also stepped in to fill this void. And this, workers were told, is your reward for a hard day's work. You will be bored earning money so that you can spend that money in non-boring ways. And workers took the deal. I mean, not like they had much choice, but they did like all of this new leisure. Here, I'm going to quote from Susan and Luke's book, Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid, because it just captures the shift so well. Quote, this was a revolution in how many conceived of life's meaning. It altered their expectations for what they were entitled to. Rather than sadness and passive acceptance of routine drudgery, many came to believe that pleasure, happiness, excitement, and novelty were their birthright. End quote. It's sort of a devil's bargain, as it were. And it's, it's saying, well, we'll give up the intrinsic rewards of work which might be there for the extrinsic rewards so if you go into the factory every day and it's it's no fun to work there at least when you leave in the afternoon you'll have money to go to the saloon or to the theater or to buy something from the sears robot catalog this is starting to sound familiar isn't it today we still have boredom and we still have the amusements that help us escape that boredom and, of course, today we also have the people who say the amusements are counterproductive and we should really be more bored. So where did that come from? Ah, it is all part of the history, too. But before I tell it to you, I think that there's something else we should pause to consider. Up until now, we have been talking about boredom's evolution as a word and a concept and an experience, but we haven't actually defined what we mean in a very specific way when we use the modern word boredom. What actually is boredom from a scientific perspective? There's some work still being done to kind of come up with a consensus understanding that all social scientists and researchers can get behind. And, you know, that's one of the things that we've been working on our lab in the last little while. That is John Eastwood, who does his research at a lab, yes, called the Boredom Lab. He can literally break boredom down into its core component parts and help us see what of that is useful and what is not and whether we really should want to feel bored. And that is what we're going to do after a short break. When we come back, it is the science of boredom and then the rest of the history of boredom and how it applies to all of us today. How many passwords would you say you have? I'd say I have one billion. It is so hard to keep track of them. And that is why there is NordPass, a new generation password manager where security meets simplicity. NordPass was created by the cybersecurity experts who built NordVPN. With NordPass, you get a system that stores all passwords in one place, where you can easily organize them and access them with a single master password. Because NordPass remembers your credit card details, you can now shop online with ease, and it makes passwords easy to manage. There's a way to securely share them with others, a way to check if they're weak or overused, and more. So check it out and take advantage of NordPass's so long summer sale. Get 74% off NordPass at nordpass.com slash BFT or use the code BFT at checkout. 
Plus, you get an additional four months for free. Just go to NordPass, N-O-R-D, pass.com slash B-F-T. And now let me tell you about another great sponsor. You may not be feeling down and out and depressed or like you're at a total loss, but if your stress is high, your temper is shorter than usual, or even if you're starting to feel strain in your relationships, you may want to talk with someone who's completely unbiased about your life, someone who isn't going to judge you or take sides on anything. That's what therapy can be, and it's what BetterHelp can provide. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so that you don't have to see anyone on camera if you you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. And when you unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback, you just might be surprised at what you gain from it. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy, and Build for Tomorrow listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com build. Again, that is betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P, dot com slash build. We are back. So just before the break, I introduced you to this guy. My name is John Eastwood, and I'm an associate professor of clinical psychology at York University in Toronto, Canada. And like I said, John runs the Boredom Lab there, which is dedicated to deepening our understanding of boredom, because there is much to understand. Oftentimes, people mistakenly assume that boredom just arises when there's nothing to do around us. And that's a bit of a misnomer. We would define boredom as this uncomfortable feeling of wanting but being unable to be engaged in satisfying activities. John says that there are two core things happening in the mind of a bored person. The first thing is what boredom researchers call a desire bind. So the bored person desperately wants to be doing something, but they don't want to do anything in particular that's available to them in the moment. So they can't muster up an actionable desire. Hence, the desire bind. Now, if you have kids, as I do, then you are surely witness to this all the time. Like, my six-year-old will always say, I'm bored. And my wife and I will be like, stop saying that. You are in a house with one million toys. But he wants something other than the toys he has. It is a desire bind, the first part of boredom. And the second part of boredom is what John's team calls an unoccupied mind. So the bored person's cognitive abilities their mental capacity is underutilized. So it's as if they have brain power that's sitting on the shelf and not being used. And this feels really uncomfortable. So if you were to summarize what's going on here, John says that you can think of boredom as a crisis of agency. And agency refers to our capacity to think about the future, to develop plans, to monitor ourselves and regulate ourselves as we engage in a plan. And so boredom kind of throws down the gauntlet. It tells us you're not being agentic in this moment, and it invites us to address that problem and to regain our sense of agency in the world. And that can be an opportunity to either go in some positive directions or some negative directions. And this is a good thing in theory. We want an internal alert system for when we don't have agency, which is to say, (laughs) wouldn't you know it? Boredom, like pain, is a signal. The comparison is true, in a way. Physical pain tells our body that we're in some danger or we're damaging our body. And so similarly, I would say that 
boredom is good in that it alerts us to a problem and helps us rectify that. But what happens from there is not so simple. For some people, the sensation of boredom pushes us to engage our brains and bodies in positive ways. For others, boredom is associated with things like overeating, impulsivity, depression, anger, and risk-taking. And this is true not just in humans, but in animals. When animals are in under-stimulating environments, they may bite themselves or pull out their feathers or fur, which of course reminds me of that electric shock study with humans from the beginning of the episode, where people zapped themselves out of boredom. And why do living creatures all do this? So we don't know for sure, but the possibility is that both for animals and for humans, the bored state is such an uncomfortable feeling that people may actually prefer physical pain as something to sort of vivify and make them feel more alive again after that kind of dull experience of being bored. And now we can see why people will take almost any opportunity to escape boredom. Which brings us back to our boredom timeline. Because when we left off with the history, we were just getting to the point where those escapes from boredom were being created. Remember, an industrialized America created all these monotonous jobs and workers effectively agreed to a deal. We will do these boring jobs in exchange for having money and time to enjoy the new pleasures of modern life. Cities were soon full of entertainment options. And while rural people had less access to that, eventually new technologies like phonographs and radios brought the fun to them. The Edison phonograph was even advertised that way. It said, quote, it was the ideal amusement for the farm, end quote. But while the working class was enjoying this newfound leisure, the worrying class was seeing reason to worry. Here is Susan Matt again. In the 1920s and early 30s, there's a real discourse among psychologists, sociologists, and other commentators who are wondering, is it good for humans to be exposed to movie theaters, to concerts, to radios blaring? Is this too much sensory stimulation? Is it going to lead to sensory overload? Is it going to lead to kind of nervous people who demand ever more excitement in their lives? Susan and Luke include a bunch of examples of this in their book. For example, in 1921, the psychiatrist Abraham Meyerson described entertainment as a kind of drug. Excitement follows the great law of stimulation. The same internal effect, the same feeling, requires a greater and greater stimulus, as well as new stimuli. And in 1925, the sociologist Robert Park wrote that, Leisure is now mainly a restless search for excitement. The restlessness and search for adventure is, for the most part, barren and illusory because it is uncreative. We are seeking to escape from a dull world instead of turning back upon it to transform it. It's kind of crazy, right? Just a generation or two earlier, the word boredom didn't exist, and the very concept of it seemed exclusive to the wealthy, who at once got to enjoy their luxury, struggle against the free time that their luxury afforded, and then feel guilty about the struggle. Meanwhile, doctors were describing all these terrible dangers of boredom, which encouraged the wealthy to stay busy, and the laboring class were left to build air castles and write letters about how nothing happened to them. Then, the concept of boredom became democratized, as did some sense of leisure, or at least access to entertainment and and leisure time. And wouldn't you know it, that's when doctors and intellectuals start saying, wait a minute, I don't know if all this entertainment is very good for you people. 
By the 1950s and 60s, the narrative had shifted even further. The idea of boredom and the entertainment that helped people escape from boredom melded into one singular thing. The entertainment industry itself was now seen as the cause of boredom, or at least the trap that kept people from truly accessing their minds. Commentators worried about a pampered population that tried to escape their dull lives through entertainment. Here is the journalist Harriet Van Horn in 1961. You have to be bored near frenzy to turn on the television set these days. Once you've turned it on, you merely exchange passive boredom for active boredom. Although, wouldn't you know it, around that time, boredom once again becomes a concern for doctors. A landmark 1957 study published in Scientific American called boredom a pathology. McCall's magazine soon ran a piece called Is Boredom Bad For You?, which went on to report, Don't underestimate the dangers of being bored. According to experts on the subject, it's one of the most destructive of your emotional states. And onward we would go through the decades with a shifting understanding of who was bored and what the effects of boredom were and how to escape that boredom and whether the solution was also the problem. Which, more or less, brings us to where we are now, in a big soup of all our previous opinions and class anxieties about boredom. So what are we to make of all of this? Are we, the modern people who pull out their phones whenever they're bored, actually missing something important? Is boredom something that we should want more of, like the pundits say? Longtime listeners of this show will know where my instinct lies. I look back at the past and I see that a conversation from today is just a repeat of a conversation from yesterday and then take that as a sign that today's worries are overblown. Because, you know, if we survived whatever we were worried about the first time, maybe it isn't that big of a deal to begin with. And if thousands of years worth of people also sought an escape from boredom, utilizing whatever tools of distraction they had available to them, then doesn't that mean it is perfectly natural for us to do the same with our tools of distraction. But Luke, eh, he's not buying that. I make a slightly different inference is that, well, it's precisely because we worry about these things that we make the appropriate adjustments. And maybe a good illustration of that is back in 2008 or 2010, when my students were coming in the classroom and the phones were going off ringing all the time and, and actually posing a real distraction. Through the process of worrying about those things, We've learned how to use those devices more politely or less intrusively than we did when we first started using them. I I don't hear a phone going off anymore in in the classroom. You know, we're constantly celebrating innovation, you know, that innovation is, is something that we should be engaged in if we want to be a productive, competitive society in the world. But innovation isn't just about creating products and creating new technologies. It's also about learning how to use technologies wisely. And so that the process of worrying, of of, of being anxious, you know, at least in the most charitable sense, is another form of innovating. And that seems reasonable to me. Technology alone is not the sum of innovation. The way we use something is also innovation, and new tools do not always seamlessly integrate into old settings, which means that we should always have smart conversations about ways to improve. 
but I guess I still worry about the ability to actually identify what's new about new things. Like when commentators today lionize boredom and talk about how dangerous it is that we don't allow ourselves to be bored, they seem to be ignorant of our very old, very human, very natural desire to not be bored. This isn't some new thing that cell phones created, and this matters because if we make decisions and set expectations based on a romantic idea of ourselves rather than an actual understanding of ourselves, then we're creating expectations that don't match our needs. We will always be disappointing ourselves. But of course, I admit, these are the words of someone who does not study boredom for a living. So let's turn back once again to a guy who actually does, John Eastwood, who runs the Boredom Lab. What does he hear when he hears people talk about how we need to be bored and how dangerous it is that we're not allowing ourselves to be bored? Is this true? I would kind of think about it a bit differently that I think the idea what we I think what we're romanticizing or what we yearn for or what we need or want I would characterize it as we need to be less stimulated or we need to be in potentially boring situations without succumbing to boredom boredom of course is a lack of agency a desire bind an unoccupied mind that is never desirable and it never will be and for good reason. I don't think we should equate understimulation. I don't think we should equate a weekend without the internet as being necessarily boring. What we should do is recognize that we maybe have to grow our capacity to become mentally engaged when the external stimulation falls away. And so this is an important skill that we need to foster, need to develop. When I heard John say this, I flashed back to this thing that the technology police keep saying about how we need to be bored. They always give an example of missed opportunities for boredom, as if they're little litmus tests for our mind. And the example is just like the one that I gave at the beginning of the show when I talked about how I check my email in front of the microwave. It is these moments, the ones we fill mindlessly with distraction. Here is a little bit of that clip that I played of Sam Harris. Like boredom used to be a thing. Like you, yeah. you, you'd, you'd be sitting in the the waiting room of a doctor, right? And here's that same kind of sentiment expressed on CBS this morning. Is the smartphone the enemy of boredom? It really is because, you know, anytime anybody gets up to go to the bathroom at the dinner table, we're all checking our phones, thinking that there's some great answer happening there. And, and the person going to the bathroom usually takes their phone. Exactly. Them. exactly. Gross. Ah, bye, bye, bye. Everyone affirmed the observation at once. But look. Now that we've heard John make this great point about the difference between boring and less stimulating environments, I am hearing this public advice about boredom differently. What I now hear is, well, it's kind of like the equivalent of how some financial pundits will tell you to skip your daily latte because you'll save $5 a day and that really adds up over time. But my brilliant friend, Nicole Lappin, who is a financial expert and bestselling author and host of the podcast Money Rehab, which you should totally listen to, well, she hates that advice because giving up your morning coffee doesn't make you a millionaire. It actually just adds an inconvenience to your life that slows you down and maybe makes you lose more money in other ways. You want to be a millionaire? Enjoy your damn coffee and start making larger and more strategic financial decisions. And this whole boredom thing cuts the same way. When critics today 
talk about the importance of boredom, it's almost as if they're scolding us for not taking every opportunity for quiet contemplation, or that the only difference between enjoying quiet moments and not enjoying them is that we have been ruined by a cell phone. But you know what? Sam Harris, if you can clear your mind and reach a meditative state in a doctor's office waiting room, then you go for it, man. But I can't, and most people can't. And I think that hammering this message that small moments of downtime are where we reveal the weaknesses of our minds is really counterproductive, because there are times when we are bored. We just are. And we don't like being bored. Not now, not a hundred years ago, not a thousand years ago. Boring is boring, and it makes us want to zap ourselves with electricity, and it makes animals want to tear their fur out, and that's what's natural. So give us a break. And stop making people feel like they're doing something wrong when they're not. But of course, that is not to say that we can't, as John says, grow our capacity to become mentally engaged when the external stimulation falls away. So what if, and here's a crazy idea, what if we all just have to figure out for ourselves what that looks like and what works for us in the moments that make sense for us? What can that look like? Well, look, I can only say what it looks like for me, but here it is. About a year ago, I started taking bike rides to get some exercise, which I had never done before. I would go out for an hour, sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the middle of the day. And at first I thought, well, what am I going to do while riding this bike? So I listened to podcasts or music. But after a while, I started to realize that my mind was wandering during the podcasts or by the end of the bike ride, I was totally sick of music. But I actually was enjoying the feeling of riding the bike. So then I uh, tried riding without anything in my ears. And I liked that too. I'd come up with ideas or remember something I'd forgotten to do or let my mind refresh. And I realized that this works really well for me because I am very bad at sitting still. I always have been. So if I can give my body something to do, my mind can explore. Now, is this being bored? I submit to you, it is not. Is this utilizing my downtime in unrealistic ways? No. This is me discovering something about me and changing my routine a little as a result. And hey, whatever, it worked for me. Maybe some version of that works for you too. I suggest trying it out. But the next time you feel a little bored because you're walking to the bathroom or waiting for your food in the microwave or whatever, I give you permission to not feel bad about whatever you do to fill that time because sometimes we are bored and we don't like to be bored. And boring is not what we should strive for. And that's our episode. By the way, this is not the first episode that I've had Susan and Luke on to discuss the history of emotions. So if you want to hear more from them, rewind to the episode called Your Vein and That's Okay, where we get into the history of vanity and how it was shaped by the post office, the camera, and the mirror. And of course, also pick up their book, Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid. And also, I have one more great little bit from their research to share. It is about what happened when laborers in the 1800s tried to escape their boredom with fantasies, and it didn't quite work out. But first, do you want to feel more optimistic about the future? I have a free audio course that can help you do it, and you can find it by going to jasonpfeiffer.com and clicking on the free training button at the top. While you're there, you can also see more of my work and get in touch with me directly. I promise to reply. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at HeyPfeiffer, H-E-Y-F-E-I-F-E-R. This episode was written and reported by me, Jason Pfeiffer, with additional research from Britta Lochting and Adam Sokolich. Sound editing by Alec Bayliss. Our theme music is by Casper Babypants. Learn more at babypantsmusic.com. The actors you heard reading all those great old quotes were Gia Mora. You can find her at giamora.com and Brent Rose. You can find him at brentrose.com. Thanks to my sister and her husband, Jody and Andy, for letting me take over their house to do the interview for this show. And also, fun note, as I create this episode, I am actually on my way back to New York after a year and a half out west. So 
The interviews in this episode were recorded in Colorado. The episode was written and recorded in Washington, D.C., and I will be in New York by the time it actually goes live. Technology! How about that? This show is supported in part by the Charles Koch Institute. The Charles Koch Institute believes that advances in technology have transformed society for the better and is looking to support scholars, policy experts, and other projects and creators who focus on embracing innovation, creating a society that fosters innovation, and encouraging people to engineer the next great idea. If that's you, then get in touch with them. Proposals for projects in law, economics, history, political science, and philosophy are encouraged. To learn more about their partnership criteria, visit cki.org. That's cki.org. All right, now, one more little bit about boredom. Susan and Luke found all sorts of letters and diaries written by people who struggled with the monotony of their lives and who described the ways that they try to keep busy. A factory worker named Fiducia wrote in the mid-1800s about escaping into fantasies, but then the fantasies became so dark that she had to stop. She wrote a poem about it, part of which goes like this. Ugh, fancy now remain at home and be content no more to roam. For visions such as thine are vain and bring but discontent and pain. Remember in thy giddy world that I am but a factory girl, and be content at home to dwell, though governed by a factory bell. Anyway, that's all for this time. Thanks for listening, and I hope you didn't find this episode too boring. I am Jason Pfeiffer, and let's keep building for tomorrow. <laughs>